The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in May 2007. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we welcome the acclaimed actor Frank Langella. Hi, Frank. Hello. Just want to run through a few of your, your credits before we get started. Uh, Tony Awards for two shows in which you uh, appeared, Fortune's Fool in 2002 and Seascape in 1975. Tony nominations for Match in 2004 and for Dracula in uh, 1975. Uh, a ton of uh, Broadway credits, ton of uh, theater credits, ton of uh, movie credits as well currently appearing here in New York in Frost-Nixon, which, of course, is the story of David Frost uh, 30 years ago, snaring the interview with Richard M. Nixon, who had not been giving interviews after the Watergate uh, incident and his resignation. And you do play Richard M. Nixon. Yes, I do. Uh, what sort of prep did you do to become President Nixon? You, you, you don't do a caricature. You don't try to impersonate him, yet you have the essence of the man. Well, that was the that was the intention from the start. Although I went through many, many various stages of obligation to him uh, in the early days, I thought, well, I've got to find a way to bring him across. So people say, well, you know, that's not even vaguely Nixon. I didn't want them to say that. So I sort of jumped full force into as much factual information as I could. And literal, uh, as much literal as I could, um, because I thought, well, let me do that first. Let me make sure I've got some basis of truth behind me. And then f fact very often can limit your imagination when you're playing a character. So after I gathered all the facts and, and gathered what I thought were the literal truths about him, I threw them all away and decided that now it's a play and he's a character I want to create. How, how did you find Nixon as a person? What, what did you find out about the man? Heartbreaking. I mean, that was the first major uh, emotional feeling I had after reading four books, after going to Yorba Linda, his, uh, where his home, original childhood home is, and his library is. His library is kind of a sad, sort of tattered little place, too. And once I'd gotten all the political stuff out of the way and the true facts of the play and the true incidents his personality began to become alive to me, and heartbreaking is the best word I could have used for him. He was a tormented, tortured figure, com uncomfortable in his body, uncomfortable in his um, dealings with people, with women, with uh, other men, with uh, with the world, really. Yeah, stuffed and, little notes in and his a, pocket. And a very inward man, keeping things within. Yes, very, op very opposite personalities, because I'm not. I'm Italian, and I'm kind of... <laughs> freewheeling and outgoing, and I had to find ways to pull all that back. You know. How much did that surprise you? Because certainly Nixon was a very public figure who people had very strong opinions about because of, obviously, what had gone on through his presidency and his politics and all of that. Did it change your perspective on the man as you did that research, um, or... or did you find you'd, you'd always felt this way about him? I can't say that it, it surprised me because you just have to look at him if you have any perception to, of humanity and look at his body language and look at the way he behaved. And I grew up on him, so you just have to look to see that this is not uh, a man at ease. What did surprise me was how deeply I began to feel for him and how much 
I was the victim of what we're all victims of now, which is defining somebody, which is what the play Frost Nixon is about. You know, the, the, one of the great one of the great tragedies of television is that it simplifies. That's a line in the play. It narrows everybody down to a quick soundbite. And I've said this before, but you know, Imus is now a bigot, nothing else. Anna Nicole is a dumb blonde, nothing else, because that's what television does. That's what modern um, media do. You you have to get somebody. And Nixon was the jowl shaking crook with uh, the V sign, and all he is is Watergate. You are sort of what the first two or three lines of your um, obituary are, Watergate. Clinton will be Lewinsky. Uh, Imus will be Bigot. Um, That's what happens. And I, of course, thought of Nixon that way, drunk, crook. And in fact, he was, like all of us, he's so many more things than that, father, husband, uh, you know, sensitive, frightened, angry, bitter, rageful, uh, resentful. I mean, just on and on it goes, the list of things that this man carried with him every single day. And it's fascinating that you're you're talking very much about the person and not the president and actually yeah. the achievements yeah. that you, he had, because there are many who say, were it not for Watergate, we'd remember him as an amazing president for yeah. what he and achieved. I, I think this has been something I have carried with me as an actor my whole life, is I, I don't play a character's position in the world. I don't say, I'm a president, I'm a vampire, I'm the head of CBS, <clears throat> excuse me, as in the case of Good Night and Good Luck playing Bill Paley. I, I try to research what I think is, is um, ne- necessary for the, for the position the character is in. But basically, it's a man, and it's a man who gets up every day and has all sorts of human... You know, when he's brushing his teeth in the morning and taking off his pajamas and putting on his suit... He's not the president. He's a normal male with a whole bunch of, I've got to get that person today in the meeting. And I, you know, or in the case of Dracula, how do I seduce this woman and get what I need? In the case of Bill Paley, how do I deal with Morrow? They're just men. And if you play a position, if you play president, you're playing the perception of you by others. And even though you are those things, you you have to just, when you're the actor... You have to walk on inside yourself and inside the character you're playing, not play what other images of you are. For a play which deals in a figure who is so important in American history now, for good and ill, of course, it's fascinating that this is a play by an English playwright uh, that gives equal time to a British representative in the discussion, namely now Sir David Frost. Do you think you had more freedom to create this role because it appeared first on the English stage and perhaps there's different baggage that that the English audiences and English critics bring to a figure like Nixon? I don't know if freedom is the word. I I think maybe... uh the fact that we started it in England in a little rehearsal hall at the Old Vic uh, did help to remove it from any uh, pressure of an American president in an American town. And that was that was pure happenstance because it happened to be owned by an English producer. Um, and I think maybe unconsciously it did give me a bit more of a sense of largesse almost. But 
I would have come to it anyway. However, you raise a wonderful point because I don't know what would have happened had we begun this production in America. I don't know if the six months I had in England to keep exploring him and keep finding him uh, would have made the the way it's been received different. I think probably as we talk about it, it would, because I changed Nixon a fair amount when we got to America in terms of 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 his depth of persona. I had to, because from the first moment I walked on stage in America at the first preview, there was a laugh on sight, and then there was another laugh on one of the first lines, because, it, first of all, it wasn't what people are used to seeing me as, and second of all, I became aware very quickly that here they were doing what we all do. They were jumping to a caricature or to a, oh, I see. It's were you Rich to, Little? Were you yes. Anthony Hopkins? He's Nixon. is stooped over and he's talking in a funny way and, oh, it's going to be. And I had to say to the audience through my work in the first scene, no, he may be amusing, but he's not a clown. But as whereas in England, it didn't happen that way. They didn't leap to that at all. They began to find him amusing later on because there's so much about him that is legitimately amusing. So had we started in America, it might have been a more difficult path. I had the luxury of six months in England to keep on exploring him and and deciding what was a little too over the top, what was better, how much of the dark side of him I wanted to project, and how much of the genuine humor, which because he is, in fact, quite funny, you know. Let's talk about the show, Frost-Nixon. It's based on a television show called The Nixon Interviews, which David Frost conducted back in 1977. In fact, the show, four episodes, four 90-minute shows, aired in May of 1977, so it's just about 30 years ago, Mm -hmm. which means anybody under the age of 40 probably doesn't even remember what it was. Exactly. Uh, It was basically David Frost, who was a British um, entertainer and talk show host. He had his own show in this country, uh, snagged an interview away from some of the biggies with David Frost, put up his own money in order to to pay, uh, with with Richard Nixon, rather, uh, mm. put up his own money to secure the interview, and then had to go out about drumming up stations to carry it. It was not carried on a network. It was an ad hoc network of about 145 independent stations, and he had to raise the money, get the advertisers and all that. It was a very daunting challenge uh, for a man. And then, according to the show, he was criticized for, like, throwing softballs at, at Nixon, at least at first. Yeah, he was. Um the play is basically a story about uh, it, it's a fictionalized version of some facts that actually happened. Peter Morgan's um, theme, if that's the word, is that two men were at the bottom. Each man was at a, a turning point in his career. For David Frost was being looked at as nothing more than what you called him, an entertainer and talk show host with no real depth or value. Nixon was finished, overdone. Uh, they were each in the gutter. Each saw the other as a way back. <clears throat> Excuse me. Each saw the other as a uh, catalyst, if you will, to some sort of legitimacy. And uh, whether or not that was in either man's mind, I don't know. I, I, I really think in reading and reading and reading that each each man is and was, was incredibly smart opportunists who knew who knew how to survive and in what way to survive. Nixon, in fact, spends the rest of his life trying to get back a legitimacy he never could accomplish. And David had an extraordinary reemergence as a result of these interviews. But to me, the theme is larger than that, and the reason I think 
the play is gratefully very successful is, and someone said this to me last night, it taps into every one of our own fears about climbing the ladder of success, not feeling we're worthy when we get there, and then falling back down and shooting ourselves in the foot. You can't get much higher than the President of the United States. And then to get there with the largest mandate in history, to get there when you've been told by your father and the press constantly that you are a funny-looking, awkward, sexless clown to become president, to have all this uh, um, uh, support from the country, and then to just ruin it all, to bring yourself down, is to say that the voices in your head that are constantly there saying you're not worthy, you're not, you're not enough, you're, as he says in the play, the, you know, the smart asses at college, the high-ups, the well-born people always told Nixon he was nothing. And he got to be president, and it was just too much for him. So unconsciously, he knocked himself down. And I think most of us can relate to that. Most people can see where a roadblock comes in their own life, where they say, I can't quite get myself to go past this point. I can get just there. I can't quite get the girl I like. I can't quite get the job I want or the salary I want. Why is that? Why does somebody else roar ahead of me? And then very often, the person who roars ahead, you'll see in the gutter as you are climbing up because that person couldn't handle the success and destroyed themselves. That's what I think the play is about. Well, in the play, uh, there's a scene where Swifty Lazar, the Hollywood agent, negotiates that uh, Frost will be allowed to spend only 25% of the time on the the Watergate uh, uh, incident and and everything that, that happened from that. The rest would have to be spent on foreign policy, domestic issues, that sort of thing. And in fact, that was the first show that aired. It was taped last in the sequence of taping, but it was the first show that was aired because there was some trouble getting sponsors. So the uh, the syndicator uh, figured to put it up first would kind of get the, the attention of the press, get the good right. stuff up first to attract viewers and attract press. And there's a throwaway line in the shot. I forget who says it. If it's Swifty Lazar or somebody mentions that Syndicast, a syndication company, is going to be airing it. They were, in fact, a fairly small company that nobody really knew very much about except in the television business. So here you had a guy who was who had fought off Mike Wallace, who was trying to get the interview, who did not have a network, who was having trouble getting sponsors with a small syndication company behind it, putting together a network of ad hoc stations, and it became one of the big media events, not only of the year, but probably of all time on television. Got very good ratings, got a lot of press, cover of time, cover of news. And made the president a good deal of money. And made him close to a million dollars, what the estimate ended up being. in those days, that was an extraordinary amount of money. Do you recall at the time being aware of of that series? Yes, I, I remember vividly watching the resignation. I was sitting on the floor in a rented house in Williamstown, Massachusetts, in rehearsal for a play. And we were, you know, we had two hours off. Everybody was aware of it, of course, and watched it. And I don't remember watching the Nixon interviews. I wasn't a very political young actor. I know most young actors aren't. Uh, There are much more exciting things to be involved in when you're that age. Um, And I was living my life. So I don't remember watching the David's interviews very much. I did watch them in preparation for this. Yeah. But Frost basically resuscitated his career by doing that. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. He got on the cover of Time and Newsweek, and he really did. We talked already about the difficulty of portraying a figure that people know 
so much about and have so many different impressions of from from the man himself and other people portraying the role. But of course, when playing a real person, you have the challenge, of course, of other real people still being around mm. who knew him. And so we have to ask, Sir David Frost is certainly well aware of of this show. And did you spend time with him talking yes. about well, I've the spent, experience? I spent a great deal of time talking to Frank Gannon, I think about an altogether 10 to 15 hours of phone conversations, a fair amount of time with James Reston, a good amount of time with Mike Wallace, Barbara Walters, uh, one dinner with Henry Kissinger, um, and a little bit with David after it opened because I didn't want any. I didn't want David's prejudicial view. Okay. I wanted to keep my own counsel about it. This is after it opened at the, at the Dunmore. After it opened at the Dunmore. Oh, okay. But I, I think I've spent less time talking to David than anybody. We talk about other things, but I have to see it from my point of view and not his. And. Uh, and I gathered, and most of the time, all the people I spoke to would talk quite a good deal about the situation at the time, what the politics was, who said this to whom. And I would listen to all that and then try to get them to the human male, because that's what I had to deal with. And I would ask them to give me mental pictures and uh, visuals and uh, emotional memories of the man and they were all pretty consistent I mean everybody had a different story but they were pretty consistent this was a man that everybody reacted to pretty much in the same way you know? well we've been talking about Frost Nixon which of course is is your most current project but you have such an extensive career that we've we've got to now jump back and talk about some of your other remarkable work going back you know into the 60s um while many people talk about Seascape as having been sort of the big breakthrough role for you, students of theater, those of us who grew up reading anthologies, know about two plays that were done at the American Place Theater in the 60s, Benito Sereno and The Old Glory. And that seems to be the first place that, that many of us heard about your work. Yet those plays seem to have faded back. Can you tell us a little mm -hmm. about that and, and about the era in which you were really... It was, coming up it, it was uh, I am a lucky duck. I came to New York in the early 60s and and uh, pretty much worked almost immediately. My first play was The Immoralist and opened the Bowery Lane Theater, and that was followed by Benito Sereno, which was written by the great American poet Robert Lowell. It was the first production of the American Place Theater, which was run by Wynne Hanman, who's just had a wonderful dinner in his honor last week. Um, and Benito Sereno, as you know, was based on the Melville novella. And it was an extraordinary experience with Roscoe Lee Brown, uh, Lester Rawlins, both of whom Roscoe just passed away last week, and Lester. And we rehearsed for many, many weeks three plays, a trilogy that were written by Robert. One was called Benito Sereno, one was called Major Molyneux, and the third, I can't remember, and both of those were not as successful, and they were dropped from the repertoire, and Benito Sereno became the only play at the American Place. And um, we played it, and then we... It's the first thing I ever did on film. It's There's a kinescope of it, if that's the word, that is owned by Channel 13 mm. in black and white, of which I have a copy. Mm. And uh, I think Channel 13 maybe should dig it up, and it's quite fascinating to watch it now. And it was... Uh, a wonderful experience for me. Uh, we shot it in two days. 
black and white. Hmm. And from there, certainly a great deal of regional work. You you were up at Berkshire Theater Festival. You started working, you know, quickly at Williamstown. You were in the premiere production at the Mark Taper Forum back in in sixty yes. seven. I am so old and venerable. I have opened more theaters in this country. <laughs> Better the, to open the lo- them, yes, than to close them. <laughs> I've opened the Long Wharf's first production. Mark Taper is American Place Theater. Just a lot. I'm very lucky. But let's talk about then the the real uh, breakthrough on Broadway. Some people say it was your Broadway debut. Others include your work at Repertory Theater of Lincoln Center. Mm-hmm. Um, but Seascape, what what was your reaction when uh, you were asked to play in its original production, A Lizard? I was asked to play A Lizard in a very unusual way. I was sitting at the bar of the Algonquin. And a gentleman I didn't really know very well walked over to me and said, "Um, what are you doing this summer? And I said, I'm going to Williamstown to do, I don't remember what the play was, but, you know, a checkoff of some kind. And he said, no, you're not. You're coming to, you're you're going to do my play. And I said, what's your play? And he said, Seascape. My name is Edward Albee. And uh, who do I contact? So I you know, you know, you're so arrogant as a young man. I said, "Well, send it here," and indeed he did. And I read it, and it was the part of a lizard. And um, I called my agent and I said, "You know, I want to make my Broadway debut in something important, and this is Edward Albee." I, of course, I knew who he was, but I didn't know who he was on site. This is Virginia Woolf. This is one of America's leading playwrights at that time. Um, I want to do it, and my agents were absolutely adamant that I shouldn't because I would be playing a lizard all covered up in paint with a tail and this is not a way to make your debut. People should see what you look like. And I have always been character driven all my whole career. Always. I've always chosen based on what I think the exciting challenge of a part would be. And I said make the deal. And uh, they did. And uh, that was my Broadway debut. Was this just a chance meeting? Did he know that was a chance meeting. I, I think, I don't know whether, I've never asked him, I don't know whether he looked across the room and thought, that's the right actor. How could he? I mean, I, I was going to look like a lizard. but nothing <laughs> to do with how I looked. I think someone had told him about uh-huh. some of the early off-Broadway successes because it, at that point I was an established young actor in New York. I'd done six or seven off-Broadway shows and won some honors and was well thought of. Mm-hmm. So, um, and also, I had always said in my young arrogance that I wouldn't go to Broadway unless I could be above the title. Mm-hmm. I was determined, and that was part of the deal. I wanted to be above the title, and I ended up being there as a result of the generosity of Deborah Carr, who was the star of that production. So how did you feel about having to play a lizard? Was that oh, I was, a challenge? I was uh, thrilled with it, and uh, a great, great costume was created. Uh-huh. For me, a wonderful actress who's still a great friend of mine, Maureen Anderman, and I played husband and wife, uh, Lizards. And it was a great way to make a debut and a great uh, production to be in. Excuse me. Excuse me, to be in. And Deborah was a wonderful example of what a leading star should be like and how how one should behave. I didn't behave very well in that production, but she was impeccably behaved. You were... uh, a uh, naughty lizard, a bad lizard. I was an obstreperous young man. I uh, was a, a lot to handle. I was a difficult young man. Hmm. 
Well, then you got cast in Dracula, and uh, I yes. think you're, you're extremely well known for that, for playing yeah. a very interesting, shall we say, Dracula version. Mm. Well, yesterday someone was in my dressing room, and we were talking about the subject we started with of this program about people being known for and what's going to be in your obituary. And I said, well, now I think finally my obituary, the third or fourth line, won't necessarily be Dracula. It'll mm. be Richard Nixon. You know, because you get defined by your most popular hits, even though I've had, this is my 14th Broadway show, my 21st Broadway production, a New York production, counting off Broadway. But you do get defined by the smash hits, you know. Well, it was a smash hit, and you played it as both a sexy, romantic, a dashing, mm -hmm. a very almost likable Dracula. Well, again, um, I... I Remember when I was asked to play Dracula, I said uh, there there will be no hint of Bela Lugosi. There will be no hint of uh, I never drink wine or any of that. I've got to find him, and I made the producers terrified because I couldn't speak him. I couldn't even I couldn't even pretend to do anything on stage in rehearsals until. I got over every notion in my head about what the cliches would be. I just said the words very quietly. And then one day, this gothic romantic figure began to uh, began to gestate in me, and I began to sense that I could find a way to play him that was away from the cliché of him. It's interesting you use the word cliché because the same word would apply to Nixon. You did yes. not use clichés with Nixon. You did not use clichés with Dracula. Mm -hmm. You looked, I guess, for the for the character that you were portraying. Well, you have to. Otherwise, you're just playing a soundbite or you're playing what everybody expects. And mm -hmm. you have to... It seems to me one of the hints, if that's it, to young actors for longevity is one change is accept the change in you, you know. As your hair starts to go, accept it. As your body and face change, accept it and know that there are more exciting possibilities for you as you get older. Uh, every time I, th I talk to an actor who says he's going to have his face lifted or, or do things to youth in himself, I always say, well, you're 60 now, and you're telling me that if you do this plastic surgery, your doctor says you'll look 45. Why do you want to look 45 and compete with the 45-year-olds? The 60-year-olds are dying out, you know. <laughs> I mean, why do you want to go back there? To me, it's better to just keep evolving and changing so that, um, you know, I can look at my so-called matinee idle days and think, well, I had them. They were wonderful. But I certainly don't want to, you know, strap on a girdle and put on a wig and try to look like I did 20 years ago. I'd be very embarrassed. You had an opportunity with Dracula that not many stage actors get, which is that you were able to repeat, oh, I shouldn't say repeat, but you were able to play the character again on film. And it's just been announced that you will have that same opportunity to play Nixon on film in the, in the film version of Frost Nixon. How do you gauge, how do you adjust the character, or is it really, I, I bridled at the word repeat, is it repeating, or is it starting again? Oh, it's it's really starting again, and um, thank you, but it is, uh, when you said it that way, I realized I'm, again, it's incredible, I'm lucky in that the two major successes of my Broadway career, the, the roles have come to me in film, and that's very rare, very, very rare. But I 
I threw Dracula out the window the first day of shooting in London, uh, as I'd done him on stage. And I won't, I can't throw Nixon out. He's too deeply inside of me. But I certainly know that I will be as close to the camera as I am to you when I play Nixon. And I won't have to do anywhere near the amount of projection. His essence, his inner life will be the same and actually kind of thrilling for me. It was very exciting to bring Dracula down from the theatricality of the stage to the intimacy of the camera. And I was very happy with the translation of that. And I'm hoping, to say, under Ron Howard's guidance, I'm hoping to do the same, to, to bring Nixon even deeper, darker. Um, uh, there will be things I'll be able to do, hopefully, on, in front of a camera that will subtle tiny little things that you can't necessarily always do in the stage. We're talking about these two iconic roles you've played. There are a couple of other iconic roles that you've actually returned to a couple of times in your stage career. And I'm wondering particularly what has drawn you to Cyrano and what has drawn you to Sherlock Holmes? I'm uh, I'm completely and utterly uh, predictable that way. Uh, when I look back at my my work and the characters I've played, I am very drawn to epic, flawed Men. I am drawn to one-of-a-kind men. I tend to be drawn to loners. Sherlock is a loner. Dracula is a loner. You know, certainly Leslie the Lizard is a loner. Nixon is a loner. Uh, Cyrano is a loner. Uh, those men, uh, tra- men with tragic flaws, men with immortal yearnings, those characters thrill me to play and to investigate. So I think there's a common thread in that I... I I rarely get cast as the father, the husband, the grandfather, you know, a family man. I tend to reach out to these roles and they tend to sort of come to me. I like I like men who have to pit themselves against incredible odds and win. Hmm. In the case of Cyrano, if my research is correct, you've played it a few times Three. over a span of some 20 plus years. Yeah, I played him at I played him when I was 40, um, around, like around 40, 50, and 60 in those ranges. Yeah. Did did that character change for you as you changed? Yes. I, I, I regret is the wrong word, but I should not have done him the last time. I was too old in my, in my head and too old in my outlook. Cyrano, I believe now, should really be played by a young man who is capable of the self-deception that he goes through so that you are more willing to believe that he is hiding behind the excuse of that big nose when in fact he's like Nixon. He's afraid. And when you get up in the years I I played him when I was 60, again, I guess 61 or so, it didn't work. It, and it was too, and I adapted it and directed it. I love the adaptation and I will do it again with a younger actor at some point. But I, um, I don't think I was very successful in the last time I played him. And how about Sherlock Holmes? Millions of people know him from the page, from the, from the mm-hmm. books, from movies, television, yeah. stage. How did you find Sherlock Holmes? Oh, I adored playing him, and I'm very grateful that uh, those parts have been recorded. Sherlock is on PBS, and uh-huh. and uh, it's actually turned out to be a rather good production of it. I, I've seen it from time to time. Uh, a small piece of trivia on the production of Sherlock Holmes on PBS is the little boy in it, Billy, is Christian Slater. 
And mm. very few people know that when they watch it. They don't recognize Christian as a little boy. But again, you know, Sherlock is addicted to cocaine, and he's he's just a delicious character to play. I loved it. Now, you mentioned directing. You have directed a few times in your mm. career. And interestingly, your Broadway follow-up to Dracula was not as an actor, but your next Broadway credit was as director. What yeah. What has drawn you to directing since it's intermittent throughout your career? Well, um, I've directed a play of Albert Inorato's called Passione, which I love doing with the, with the wonderful, gifted Jerry Stiller. Um, and I'm going to do some more. I've been in talks with Todd Hames at the Roundabout about doing a production next year, which might get put off because of the film of um, of Frost Nixon. But it, it's, a, it's a natural thing to do, and I think as I get older, um, the thing I have... I've made a pact with myself that if I can't walk on the stage all guns drawn and all cylinders uh, alive, I'll stop. I don't ever want to be less than full tilt as an actor. And I don't, I, I mean that only in I want my mental faculties to be good. I, the two things you absolutely have to have as an actor are breath and energy. You need those two things to, to really work well on stage. And if I can't knock it out of the park, if I can't give the audience a really great evening, I don't want to do it. So I'm already beginning to think about writing more and directing more and then eventually moving away from acting as I find my energies for it are lessened. You have also, a couple of times, produced plays yeah. that you have been in. They they must have been real works of passion oh, for you. They were and they were. So exhausting. After the and fall. And I don't think I'll ever do it again. After yeah. the fall, the off-Broadway yeah. production that you did with Diane Wiest in about 84, 85. Yeah. What, why did you have to produce it yourself, and, and why did you want to do that play? It was a play that nobody wanted to do. I had done it in uh, Williamstown to some success, and I called Arthur. I just, I was sitting at, I remember my son was like one or two years old, and he was sitting on my lap, and... I just leaned forward, as in, as is the case with so many decisions in my life. It came into my head. I dialed Arthur. I said, Arthur, I've got a notion of, about after the fall. I think I'd like to do it. Well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I want to uh, play Quentin again. He'd seen me do it at Williamstown. And this is what I think about the play, and I think maybe we could lose some of the extra scenes about the house on American activities and again get it to the human story of Quentin and Maggie. But you're telling Arthur Miller he I'm might want to cut his play. Yeah, well, <laughs> and um, he said sure, like that on the phone. And he, and then he said something highly complimentary. Nobody else the fuck wants it. You know, so I said, oh, I got this by attrition, you know. So um we made an agreement. I think I paid him a dollar or something. He just mm. didn't care much because no one wanted to do that play. And he felt very strongly that it was misunderstood. Then began an extraordinary seven months of my life where Arthur came to my apartment and my wife cooked him a meal and we sat in my study and we went through the play page by page by page. And he did, in fact, make every cut I suggested. He took out all the House on American, and he, I said, let's let's bring this to the story of a man and three women, and we did, and I think we did a rather good production of it. But in raising, you, you had to raise money if you're producing yeah. a show, and so many actors, you know, look at producers and 
aren't quite sure what they're up to. Was this an eye-opening experience to get involved on the business side for you? It was easy. I'm, really? I'm sorry to say in this instance it was easy. My At that particular point in my career, my star was in a pretty good place. I've certainly had moments in my career when I couldn't have raised $10. But I picked up the phone and called two people, Roger Berlind and Ray Larson, I said, um, I'm offering you me, Arthur Miller, and this play. And they both they both came in within minutes. They both said, fine. And I was already committed to do a production of Design for Living at Circle in the Square, so I had to live that out. And while doing that, Arthur and I kept working on the play and came up with the version. But it, it was at that point, off-Broadway, a very attractive package for two producers. So we, the three of us produced it together. And was it as easy when you decided to produce a project for yourself on Broadway, specifically uh, Sherlock's Last Case? No, that was a miserably difficult uh, experience. Uh, that one really, I would think, was the nadir of uh, I was way in over my head. I had, fortunately, I had an extraordinary general manager, a man by the name of Roy Somlio, who, as you would know, was a very big part of the theater wing for years. And um, he guided me through. But I was in with Sharks. I was in with Roger Stevens at, uh, in Washington. And when the play was an enormous hit in Washington, Roger tried all sorts of ways to get it away from me. And Roy saved me on that. Hmm. Hmm. But I'll never do that again. I'll never produce a play uh, and uh, star in it, especially a big Broadway play. It's wildly difficult. Back to Franklin Jella, the actor. In 2002... You got your second Tony for Fortune's Fool. It was a comedy. What, what was that? All that. What, what was the show, and how did you get into it? I was uh, again in a very uh, difficult place. I was sitting, uh, actually sitting at at the Old Vic, in a failure, a huge failure called Moon Over Buffalo, that I was doing at the Old Vic, uh, a theater that housed some 1,400 people, and we had 70 or 80 or 90 people on the matinees. It was a true failure, a huge flop. And uh, on at my door arrived a script by Turgenev called Fortune's Fool, Arthur Penn attached, produced by a man called Julian Schlausberg. And when, this, when I got to the last page... I looked for a phone number, and I rang New York, and I said, uh, may I speak to Mr. Schlossberg? And he got on, and I said, I want to say hello to anybody who wants to produce a Turgenev play on Broadway. I would love to do it. And he said, happy, we're both happy. Arthur Penn would love it. I would love it. Our, uh, Alan Bates would love it. He, would already, he was already attached. And two nights later, uh, no, I guess Alan came. Alan came to see me in the play, and we... Um, I think he was looking me over to see whether or not I would be suitable. And um, I agreed, readily agreed, because I was in this disaster in London, and I had then I had that to look forward to. Another two months in London, and then we started rehearsing it in January. And it turned out to be an extraordinary experience from beginning to end. Hmm. Does it put extra pressure on you when you know that uh, somebody like Alan Bates is going to be in the audience watching and you're basically auditioning? No, I didn't know Alan was there. Uh, he was there with uh, Eileen Atkins, and I didn't know they were there until I heard their voices in the hallway. You know, Alan Bennett wrote a wonderful book about 
backstage etiquette and uh-huh. what to do. And one of the things he says is you should always come into the backstage calling out the name of the star. Where's Mr. Langella's dressing room? Uh-huh. So you make the actor feel you're so much on his side. <laughs> and I heard Alan Bates's voice ringing through the hallway. Where's Mr. Langella's dressing room? And I started to laugh because I thought he's probably read Alan Bennett's book. And Eileen and he came in and, and uh, were, were wonderful. She was a friend already and he became a very close friend. And I said, I've just read this play. It's marvelous. And he looked kind of vague, and and off he went. And the next day I called Julian, and I said, did I pass? Is Alan happy? He said, oh, yes, he's very happy. And and what was your character in the the play? A fop named uh, Trepachov, a a, a great uh, fop, um, a rich landowner who hated Alan's character. The absolute reverse of what I felt in life. I adored Alan Bates. Uh, adored him. You know. As we look over your career and the extraordinary work that you've done, certainly you are known for playing bravura, sweeping, romantic, dashing figures at times. It is interesting to me, though, as we look at this long list of credits, spot it very, very few times on your resume are musicals, but you have not mm-hmm. completely avoided them. And I'm just curious as to what your experience has been the few times you've chosen to do musicals and and why we haven't seen you in more. Well, I'm glad you've asked it because it's my next mountain. I'm I'm announcing publicly here for the first time that I the next thing I want to do is a Broadway musical, a great big Broadway musical. So anybody listening Write me one, please. Are there one? Oh, you, not not well, one that I, we already know. I, I have done My Fair Lady, and I have played Scrooge in the in the in the big um, Mike Ockran, Susan Stroman production. And I years ago I did musicals, but it, it is it, it's not. I'm not secure enough about my singing, and I have to go back and really train. I've just never been. I can do it, but I can't do. I, I don't feel as strongly as I do about acting. But I want to do a musical. I love the world of musicals. And S- Susan Stroman, who directed me in uh, in uh, Christmas Carol, which I did five years ago, six, seven years ago, my God, 2000, at the Madison Square Garden, was one of the greatest experiences of my life. We did four shows a day, mm. and the shows are an hour and 54 minutes, and Scrooge almost never leaves the stage and sings and dances, and I was in seventh heaven. So I'd like to do another one. And not necessarily a revival, although if anybody asked me to do My Fair Lady again, I would do it in a minute. It's it's the greatest musical in the world to do. I love doing that, too. Would you see it as a musical comedy or a more serious musical? Well, I'm... I'm Open up, to all? I'm up to anybody. Maury Yeston came to see me uh, in the play the other day, and I said, write me a musical, and... Uh, Henry Krieger, who wrote Dreamgirls, I ran into him and said, write me a musical. I'm just saying it. Write me a musical. Write me a musical. Or the gentleman who wrote Hairspray, um, Shaman. I would love love him to write me a musical. I was talking about these bravura roles, and now to bring us back to Frost Nixon, you know, you were such a dashing, romantic leading man, and you've played so many of the major classical roles. Is Nixon the farthest you've had to go to a character who is inside himself and doesn't have the outward bravura. Yes, I think. Uh, I think if I have a quick run through my mind of the parts that I've played, I would say yes, he he is, and he's a great 
leveler for me, a great test, and a great time in my career to chart new territory, because I could have certainly gone on and been Dracula my whole life. No one survived Dracula but me, really. Bela Lugosi didn't survive him. Christopher Lee has found himself profoundly locked in that genre and is, I don't think, happy about it. And I made a determination that the last day I played Dracula, which was 1979, I shot a... We did some reshoots on it, and I remember, you know, it, it's a very unromantic profession. Um, you're everybody's darling until the last shot, and then the set clears and you're standing there alone in the dry ice, and everybody's run off to do the next thing. And that's what happened. I'd played Dracula for a year on stage, a year making the, the film... And we did the last shot. I shook hands with John Badham. He went on to the next set. And I remember walking through Pinewood and going to uh, my dressing room, putting the cape up on a hook, and telling myself, verbally saying, you will never put this cape on again, ever. And you will never do anything remotely in the horror genre. And I've kept my word to myself. Mm -hmm. Other than a musical... Anything else that you'd dying to play? No. Shakespeare, anything no, like that? No, I don't lust for parts. I, I'm, as I said at the beginning, I'm a lucky duck. You know, I, I, have, I have the career I want, and I have, I have a fair degree of success. And I, I, I say this really with no arrogance, but with great humility. I have it on my own terms, and I paid the price for that. You know, I'm not as well-known or as famous or as rich as uh, a lot of other actors, but I still do what I want to do on my own terms, and then I'm and I'm willing to pay the price. I'm willing to pay, and it's not such a hard price to pay. You know, I don't I don't want or need the accoutrement of of, of stardom because then you have to work to support all that, and I don't want to work to support it at all. But there's no no there's no particular role that I think I've got to get to that. I've never been much of a let me show the world my Hamlet. Let them show my Lear. Uh, it has to, it has to knock my socks off in some personal way for me to want to do it, because it takes a lot to do. It just does. And the important thing is you have been working quite regularly on the stage, which is your your passion more so yeah. than film. I'm, uh, it's 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 true that if if all the other media dried up for me, and uh, and um, lucky for me they don't. I would still always work in the theater, you know. But I will do that less and less as, as I get older. I will. I'm writing my memoirs now. I have been for a very long time. Um, and I don't really want to really do them earnestly until I'm in my 80s. And, um, and I will uh, direct more. I think that's a very fitting uh, point to end. So, mm -hmm. Frank, Frank Langella, thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. Thank you, gentlemen. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Frank. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten. For Downstage Center, that is a wrap. And thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. 
Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the podcasts of Downstage Center, help us in our efforts to share the best in theater with listeners everywhere by writing a review for iTunes or for your favorite podcast directory. Thanks so much.